All right, welcome everyone back to another edition of New Books in Education. This is your host, Ryan Allen. And today I'm excited to bring a book that I've been trying to get the author for, for a couple months now and uh, just through summer trying to get that set up. Uh, we finally got it. And I have uh, Eric Nadelson here, Professor of Practice and Education Leadership at Teachers College Columbia University. And I'm excited to bring his book, 10 Lessons from New York City Schools, What Really Works to Improve Education. And this is from Teachers College Press in 2013. Uh, Professor Nadelson, thank you for uh, joining me today. It's a pleasure to be here, Ryan. And uh, if you can, uh, your, your background, I think, is, uh, is, gives you sort of the expertise to write this book. So can you kind of tell the audience uh, exactly how you sort of uh, kind of came up or got into education and what your background was? I think that's sure. uh, instrumental to the book. Sure. I, I was in uh, the New York City public schools for 39 years, and I don't mean as a student. Uh, I started teaching uh, in 1972, uh, later became a principal, a superintendent, chief schools officer, and retired in 2011 as deputy chancellor for uh, school support and instruction. And during that time, uh, learned a thing or two. And when I uh, retired in 2011 and came to work at Teachers College as a professor of practice in ed leadership, uh, that gave me the opportunity to reflect on my experiences and to distill what I thought were the most important lessons that I had learned in the hopes that others concerned uh, with narrowing the achievement gap, closing it hopefully, uh, and reforming uh, large urban school districts might find it useful. And you're actually from New York City? Yes. Uh, born and bred in the Bronx. I still live there. Uh, been in the Bronx for 65 years and uh, all I can say is the Bronx is beautiful this time of year. All right. Fantastic. So, yeah, I think it, it's really great. A lot of times I think people will criticize uh, academic books or sort of leadership for not having teacher experience or you know being from outside. And, and you, you kind of take all that and flip it on its head. So this is going to be great. Well, I make it clear uh, somewhere in the book uh, that this is not a research endeavor, uh, that as a professor of practice and an educational practitioner, these are hard-earned lessons in the trenches of urban educational warfare. Absolutely, and you and you lay out in the book you nice sort of ten uh, chapters or lessons. Uh, really, sort of, it's almost like a, a game plan potentially. Uh, I think, although you say it's not really uh, set up to say you know you got to do this in exact order, but, it, but we have some nice. Items here. I think actually you talk in the introduction about these, the idea of autonomy zones, mm-hmm. uh, which connects to a, couple, a lot of the chapters. I, I, and so, can you kind of talk about what that? Sure. Um, I was a principal in the New York City public schools of the school that I started for 18 years. And what I learned being a principal is that the central office can be enormously obtrusive. A good part of my day was spent on responding to requests and issues and concerns brought up by the central office, time uh, that I could better spend in uh, classrooms with teachers supporting uh, their interactions with students and improving learning. Uh, And so when I was finally in the position where uh, I could influence that relationship, 
uh, I created a uh, pilot program uh, to demonstrate the following. If Central stayed away from a small group of schools and did nothing to intervene with what happened in those schools, would schools do better than if Central continued to actively manage? Fairly simple premise. And I know I say I'm not a researcher, but this was set up uh, as a kind of research project. Uh, And what we learned was that every school that participated in the project not only outperformed citywide averages, but outperformed themselves a year earlier, which is the critical part because not knowing where the schools start or how good they are, um, the fact that they were, they were better when they weren't called out of schools for meetings twice a week, when Central didn't send mandate after mandate into schools, that, in fact, the principals and teachers, given their newfound luxury of additional time to work with students, put it to good use and uh, student achievement. Okay. Wow. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a, a great lesson, I think, for sure. Uh, the, 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 it was so successful that the chancellor, then uh, uh, Joel Klein, uh, and the mayor, Michael Bloomberg, allowed us to grow the autonomy zone until it turned into the entire system, but structured into 60 self-governing networks of schools um, responsible only for producing higher student achievement results than they had in the past, not for pleasing their supervisors, not for fulfilling this mandate or that mandate, not for whether they got their paperwork in but for whether they were effective in promoting student learning. And uh, you mentioned Chancellor Joel Klein, and he, he plays, a, I think, an important role in the book, sort of bringing up examples or, or somebody that I think it sounded like really trusted a lot of your vision or, or even uh, sort of you got some of the ideas from this book from him or vice versa. Can you kind of talk about that? Yes. Uh, initially, uh, when Joel became Chancellor, he and I uh, had very little to do with each other. He was uh, the head of the school system, and at the time I was a deputy regional superintendent for the East Bronx. Uh, but as time went on, uh, we got to know each other better. I was invited to uh, work at Central and had a succession of positions under Joel of increasing responsibility from senior instructional superintendent, chief executive officer, uh, chief academic officer for uh, new small schools, to uh, chief schools officer, to deputy chancellor. And uh, throughout that period, he vested more and more authority uh, to the point where uh, just before I left, I was responsible for the day-to-day for 1,700 schools which, as you can imagine, is uh, interesting work, to say the least. Yeah, I think that's a a good way to describe it, potentially. Uh, Well, that I mean, I think that brings us into one of the first lessons that you have here, and that's investing in leadership. Obviously, uh, Bill Klein trusted you, and and sort of you trusted his leadership as well. But how do you foster leadership uh, throughout the system? And I I think you did it 
through the New York Leadership Academy. Can you kind of talk about uh, Sure. Um, school districts throughout the country complain that there's a lack of talented leadership. However, most often, in almost all cases, they don't do anything to create a robust leadership pipeline. They just expect the universities to do their job. However, that job has, has been done in the past and that the effective leaders that just spontaneously appear whenever they're needed. Of course, uh, that rarely, if ever, happens. Um, today, thoughtful school districts, and there are a handful, um, actually invest in creating a leadership pipeline, either through partnerships with institutions of higher education or what happened in the New York City public schools is we created our own leadership academy and began training our own Leadership Academy continues today. It provides uh, new principals along with the local area universities, including Teachers College. I, uh, part of my job at Teachers College is I direct the Summer Principals Academy. And we graduate uh, 70 or 80 students a year. Uh, although the students come from all over the country, a good many of them are interested in securing leadership positions in New York. Uh, the department has become much more proactive in organizing the work of institutions such as TC and uh, NYU and Bank Street and the other Fordham, the other training programs in the area, to create a more coherent system uh, that feeds the needs as principals retire or leave their positions. Okay. It's, from the book, it sounded a little bit like, at first, the uh, institutions of higher education were a little apprehensive to sort of be working or doing this or maybe sort of stuck in the in older ways? I think some still are. Um, the reality in 2015 is that increasingly uh, state departments of education are granting the authority to prepare principals to institutions other than colleges and universities. And as a consequence, uh, the need now is to reflect deeply on the way we prepare principals here at Teachers College and uh, in the other principal preparation programs locally and nationally uh, and become better than we ever have because of the increased competition. Uh, I, for one, don't um, regret competition because it seems to me competition breeds innovation, and success. So um, it causes us to work a little harder, but uh, what we need to if we're going to meet the needs of uh, 21st century schools and school systems. Okay, if we can go on to another um, item, which I found fascinating, especially with this anecdote I'll, I'll say in a second, but it's um, the, the title is Make Everyone Directly Responsible and Accountable for Student Performance. And you you have a nice little story from Joel Klein that I guess he likes to tell. He was, I guess, touring at NASA, and he came was, It wasn't Joel, it was Kennedy. Oh, okay, Kennedy, okay, sorry. President Kennedy touring NASA. Uh, do you want to... Do you want to sure. sure. It's a lovely story. Sure, it's, uh, you know, I think it's a, it's a somewhat well-known story, but uh, John Kennedy, among other things, uh, when he was president of the United States, uh, stated at one point uh, the bold audacious idea that within a decade, America would put a man on the moon. Uh, NASA geared up for it 
And some uh, months later, when Kennedy toured uh, NASA's facility in Houston, uh, he talked with the employees. And as he went into the restroom, there was an attendant in there, and he said to the attendant, uh, so uh, what do you do around here? And the attendant said, Mr. President, I'm working to put a man on the moon. Yeah, that's that's great. Well, how do you instill that sort of mindset in the school system? You have to you have to do it in two ways. First, you have to make clear to everyone in the system that the most important relationship is between teachers and students in classrooms, and that everyone and everything else in the system exists not to uh, overthink uh, what's going on in the classrooms, but to support uh, the teachers working. That's the support staff in the school, and it's the support staff in central and in the field. We normally think of school systems as a pyramidal organization where chancellor or superintendent is at the top and the students and parents are at the bottom. But in fact, a much better model is to place the schools at the top or better yet, at the center of the organization, make it clear to everyone that their jobs have to directly relate to um, the success of at least the subset of those schools. If everyone is responsible for everything, then no one is actually responsible for anything. But if you can structure the system so that everyone, secretaries, clerical staff, deputy chancellors, and the like, have responsibility for an appropriate number of schools that are part of a team, working to support those schools in a way that increases student achievement, narrows the achievement gap, ensures that all of our students reach their highest potential, then uh, and that's how you go about instilling that, uh, that what this system is about isn't telling teachers how to do their job better. It's about giving them the supports necessary to be successful and also being co-accountable for the results. Yeah, I think that leads into the next point quite nicely. And, and you say you should reward success, um, but then also you have to face consequences if, if there's a failure or deep failure. Can you? Sure. Can you, you know, that seems commonsensical on the face of it. But if you look at what actually goes on in schools, the best teachers get the hardest classes. Uh, the teachers who aren't as effective or given classes that are easier to teach, if any class is easy to teach. Um, if schools fail, they get more money. If they succeed, we take away their federal money. Um, so right now, the incentives are on all the wrong thing. The, the, if you want more money for your school, then the kids should fail. If, if you uh, progress beyond a certain point, then you're going to lose all that money. And along with it, you're going to lose teaching positions. It's going to be much harder to manage that school. Much better if we figure out a system where success is called out, acknowledged, respected, supported, and rewarded. And failure has consequences. Uh, in the Klein-Bloomberg uh, administration, we uh, closed uh, 500 schools. Open 600 new small schools. Um, 
the reality around that is that if a school fails year after year, in some cases decade after decade, much better to give other people a chance to do a better job. I imagine that was probably one of the hardest aspects of well, the system that I worked in for uh, most of that 39 years was one where the only thing we were accountable for was pleasing our supervisor. Um, there, I worked for 14 chancellors. They came, they went. Not one of them was fired because the kids weren't learning. Superintendents weren't fired because the kids weren't learning. Principals weren't in danger of their job because kids weren't learning. In fact, if you study where high school principals um, came from uh, prior to the Klein-Bloomberg administration, they were generally charismatic leaders of large failed schools. Uh, There was an expectation that poverty was determinant uh, and an unspoken shared belief that there was nothing the system could do to change those odds. And that's the hardest thing to change. Uh, People can't believe that before we can educate kids, we have to end poverty in this country. The belief set needs to be, before we end poverty, we need to educate kids. And that, in fact, by educating kids, that's the best strategy for ending poverty. You you kind of... uh got to it earlier when you were saying, you know, you closed a bunch of large failing schools, but then opened up a bunch of smaller, um, maybe more nimble schools. Can you talk about why smaller schools are, are better or, and, and sure. how they do things? Sure. Um, people think often they equate smaller schools with smaller classes, and that's not exactly the case. The reason smaller schools is more effective from the student's perspective is that students get to be known better by more people in the school. When uh, students drop out of large academic comprehensive high schools, most often the reason they give is that they, they were anonymous. Nobody knew who they were and nobody cared to figure out who they were and respond to their learning needs appropriately. Uh, in small schools, uh, simply by virtue of the size, it is much easier um, for students at least uh, to be known well by one one teacher or more. And that's critical to the success of student growth and development. Second reason, the number of teachers in a school represents the principal's class. So if I ask you, Ryan, what do you think optimal class size would be? Uh, maybe 25. Okay. So if you think 25, and those of us who come from large urban districts generally go for the higher number, uh, 25 would be a large class in, in most suburban districts. But if you have 25 students taught by 25 teachers, that's a school of five. If you think 20 students is better, then 20 times 20 is 400. If you think 15 students in a class is optimal, then 15 times 15 is 300. Somewhere between three to 500 is probably the sweet spot. And that simply because the principal's span of control 
is determined by the same issues as the teacher's span of control, the number of students in her class. And the number of teachers in the school is the principal's class. And the principal needs to treat them as their class. And just as teachers move students um, individually based on their needs to reach their full potential, uh, principals need to do the same for teachers. And again, another point, and these all, I think, kind of see they're, they're weaving a web, but uh, the idea of reducing a cheap teacher's workload, I think it goes back to that point that you were saying, sort of getting to know the students if they don't have as many students. Exactly right. Uh, the interesting thing about the workload issue is uh, people like Ted Sizer, who was the dean of education at Brown University and started the Coalition of Essential Schools, uh, said years ago, during the time I was a that you could reorganize schools in a way that would reduce teacher load. That's not class size again, but it's the number of students that each teacher sees in a day and is responsible for, that you could reduce it without additional infusions of money. Uh, At first, I was skeptical. Uh, Then I tried it myself and realized that if you simply double the length of periods, Uh, In a typical high school where a teacher teaches, say, five classes of 25 students, then you've reduced that teacher load to 75 students or a 40% reduction. And that's without the infusion of any extra money. You you simply say every class is going to be twice as long as it had previously been. And that students don't need to take every subject every semester. That simple structural organizational change creates a situation where that English teacher has 75 papers to grade when she goes home in the evening, not 125 papers. Makes a big difference. She can devote much more time and attention to each paper and in class to each student. I'm sure any teacher listening right now is probably shaking his or her head, yes, that one. Um, if we could, and I think this one maybe a lot of a lot of people might be uh, a little bit wary of uh, uh, this, this private-public partnership. They're becoming very popular, I think, uh, throughout a lot of sectors, but education especially. So, can you kind of talk about sort of some of the sure. advantages sure. of that? And so, my analysis is: um, I, I grew up in the fifties and sixties, and at that time. If you didn't graduate from high school, you could still get a job on an assembly line in a local factory. Uh, If it was a unionized job, uh, you could, after a 40-hour week, afford a small, modest home, have a car in the driveway, send a kid or two to college. Uh, Today, that reality has changed dramatically. And... uh, as a consequence uh, of that, the reason it's changed dramatically is because back in the 50s and 60s, America dominated and monopolized the world's resources. We had been victorious in World War II. We defeated the enemy on two major fronts. We unleashed uh, the most powerful weapon ever inflicted on mankind. Uh, 
Um, and we we had the lion's share of oil. We had sweetheart deals with Saudi Arabia and other oil producers uh, to meet the needs of our factories and gas guzzling eight-cylinder pony cars. Uh, and uh, the reality today is very different. You've got emerging economies all over the world saying that they're not going to quietly sit back and starve to death as Americans maintain a higher standard of living than anyone actually really needs. Um, And so in that changed reality, you don't have sectors of the economy competing with each other for a greater share of the pie as we did in in the mid-20th century. What you've got is America competing with dozens of economies around the world to at least maintain a modest version of our former standard of living. In order to accomplish that, it's going to require that all sectors of the society cooperate. We no longer have the luxury of building iron walls between public, private, not-for-profit. But to solve complex problems like how to educate 100% of our kids, at least through high school, if not with post-secondary opportunity, it will take the entire society. And every aspect of it, including the private sector, the not-for-profit sector, I'm working along with the public sector. Okay, fantastic. And I think, you know, bringing in ideas of efficiency, accountability, those kind of things, the private sector is, is usually uh, more attuned to that, I think. Definitely some advantages. Uh, I guess kind of coming to the end of the, of the book, if we could, and you, you know, this chapter is just be bold with an uh, exclamation mark. But you have three sort of statements that you hear a lot in education circles that you say, look, we have to throw these out. We can't keep saying these. Uh, one is, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater and don't reinvent the wheel. And you're saying that, well, maybe we should potentially do these things or don't worry about these things. Can you kind of talk about? Uh, sure. Well, let's take the last one. Don't reinvent the wheel. If we don't reinvent the wheel in public education, then we will perpetuate a structure of schools and school public schools and, and public school districts throughout the country uh, that were designed so that only a portion of the kids succeed. Uh, the structure of those schools was never intended for every student to be successful. In fact, we even labeled it. Uh, back in my day, where there were some academic students and others were deemed on a, to be on a commercial track um, or a technical track, and uh, uh, essentially saying that two thirds of the students in the school were not capable of succeeding academically, going on to college, benefiting both in terms of lifestyle and in terms of economic and political benefits by receiving more education. Today, the goal is educating all of our students. We have to, because America is uh, rapidly becoming uh, a uh, two-economic strata society of uh, the wealthy, and people in uh, social services or in uh, service industry. 
and uh, and service industry workers are barely paid a living wage, and that's not what we aspire for uh, for the children. And the children, all the children, need to be our children if we're in education, not just our own biological children. So um, to to incrementally change a system that was never designed to succeed with all of its students really doesn't get you very far. We've got to basically redesign what school looks like. We've got to redesign how those schools relate to each other and are governed uh, in ways that people have never thought of. You don't get there uh, by being timid, and you don't get there by uh, thinking about incremental change. You do what John Kennedy you state within a decade we're going to get there. Uh, you put out a bold goal, and you mobilize the resources across sectors of society, and particularly in our schools, to give people the opportunity to make sure that we do. Now, uh, you wrote this book specifically, you know, in, in hopes that principals, teachers, policymakers, superintendents, uh, all of the above, and more would. would reach it, use this as a, as, as a plan, be bold, take these ideas. Uh, how, how has, have you had the reception or have you talked to, to some people that have taken this and really said, oh, wow, like, uh, you know, I never thought about it this way. Uh, can you kind of talk about that? Sure. Um, first of all, uh, the book is intentionally short because superintendents have a short attention span. Sure. Um, uh, I have had some good feedback from uh, school leaders in urban districts around the country. Uh, the state of Hawaii recently bought 400 copies wow. to distribute to policymakers around the state. Uh, the message gets out slowly, but I think it's an important message, and that is the future ain't what it used to be uh, in life and uh, particularly in education. Fantastic. And uh, last word on the book, and also the final question that we always have on the New Books Network. Uh, What do you have next? What project is coming up for you that we can all look forward to? Well, um, I I, uh, put together a manuscript for a book called Ten Lessons of Leadership. I don't know why I'm (laughs) fixated on the number 10, probably uh, poor toilet training when I was younger. Uh, But... um, more recently, I'm thinking I'll release those as articles and blogs, lesson by lesson. So that's one piece that, uh, that I'm focused on. The second piece is um, I started a, a leading-edge school for English language learners uh, 30 years ago. Uh, to date, I've only written a chapter in a book. I'd like to get into why that strategy worked, not just for English language learners. It could work for all students. And finally, uh, I'm thinking about how higher education principal preparation programs need to be more competency-based. Considering uh, writing on that subject in a way that allows me to reflect on it more deeply and share my thoughts with others. Wow. Okay, that's great. Well, we'll Certainly look forward to those three or several projects, depending on how they work out for you. Um, But to all my audience, I I thank you for joining us today to uh, talk with Professor Eric Nadelstern. And I really 
want you to go check out 10 Lessons from New York City School, What Really Works to Improve Education from Teachers College Press. Uh, and to everyone out there, I hope you learn.